Hello, friend. Thank you for clicking on The Tully Show. Thank you especially if you are subscribed and therefore getting these automatically downloaded every week. I'm told that helps quite a bit. I couldn't actually tell you how, but everybody says it helps. So if you're doing that, however you got here, thanks for being here. Look, I'm going to do the thing again where I apologize for audio on a Mark McGrath episode of The Tully Show. I won't bore you with the details except to say that the issues we've had in the past, I fixed those and then there was just a different one. This is temporary. We'll be doing them in person all the time, I swear, at some point in the not-too-distant future. For now, I didn't want to just delete the show. If the audio is too rough, skip it. I totally understand. I don't blame you. But there's a bunch of really exciting new music releases from July of 1981, and I thought we had a really fun conversation discussing them. So if you want to stick it out, great. If not, great. Either way, thanks for being here, friend. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live, on tape, on location, in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, from my nine-year-old son's bedroom, boasting a partially obstructed view, still here somehow after a year plus, a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, joining us today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and three-time champion of Rock and Roll Jeopardy. Hello and welcome back, Mark McGrath. So good to see you, Tully. It's been long, man. If we don't do this every week, I, I feel like I'm, I'm letting ourselves down. Never mind anybody else. I mean, I enjoy our discourse. I enjoy the, the revelations being made during the show. So it's always a pleasure. Good to see you, my friend. Likewise, likewise. Well, July has come and passed, but I could not let it pass without no. revisiting all of the... Because this, this is another really big month when it comes to music that was released this month in the year of 1981. Some naturally are... Um, some some of these bounties are more bountiful than others, but this is another <laughs> one where let me well, let me let me tell you some of the acts that we're not I, I don't think going to be talking about unless you absolutely insist there are uh, not making the cut. I didn't realize Natalie Cole. I kind of liked her funner, fruitier, poppier stuff. I didn't necessarily oh, just, need years. The years. Yeah, I didn't need her duetting with her dad so much personally no no but it was it was a beautiful sentiment yes. and i get i got caught up in schmaltz i love nat king cole mm -hmm. i thought the video was beautifully done um and it was done at a time that harry connick jr was kind of make bringing back the big band sounds so it was perfect timing for her and she had a real rough go of it for a while she, she was penniless cracked out everything out of the will so for me it was a beautiful comeback but i understand what you're saying I, I like the old school Natalie Cole, zero Nat King Cole, but I appreciate the comeback. I thought it was, it was nice and sweet. So she's doing her thing, you know, fairly typical, straightforward, early 80s R&B. Uh, the movie, the, the, the animated film, Heavy Metal, which is yeah. sort of legendary in its own minor, right? I finally got around to watching the whole thing uh, front to back a couple of years ago. The soundtrack comes out. It has a bunch of bands that you would expect to be on the soundtrack for the animated film heavy metal but the title track is at least sung by don felder of the eagles which makes zero sense to me what's the so the song's called heavy metal you know i have zero interest 
an animated sci-fi heavy metal project. It's I really don't like like the prog music's never been, you know, I'm not into guys that can rip the guitar center. It's never been a thing for me. So this heavy metal thing did not speak to me ever. I've never seen the movie. I, I think it was a punishing movie. I tried to sit through it 10 minutes years yep. ago. Yes. Couldn't last. So mm-hmm. I tapped out early. I had no idea Don Felder sang a lead vocal on the uh, heavy metal yeah, wasn't the most memorable track. Um, Poco still kicking around. ZZ Top, actually. ZZ Top recorded their first album that had synthesizer on it in 1981. Um, R.I.P. Dusty Hill. Yeah, definitely. Which would soon become their, ironically, their signature sound. This, you know, blues bass, you know, honky tonk trio out of Texas becomes arguably the biggest synth rock band of the 80s. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, Eliminator, they were three years away from Eliminator right there, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so think how much that band really changed and certainly rest in peace to Mr. Dusty Hill. Uh, the show must go on, though. I think it took two days off. No. Put on a mic and they were, they're playing again. Oh, yeah. No, they, are, you, they, are you are you? Who, wait, who, well, they, who? they took two days off. You know, they took two days oh, off. No, no, no. ZZ Top, ZZ Top's all about respect. Uh, wait, <laughs> I think they, they you know, I, I think uh, it. it Apparently, Dusty wrote a letter, The Show Must Go On, which is yeah. posted on their website. And uh, they, I think they canceled two gigs, and they were up to uh, three nights later. And I know this because our manager manages these top. So. so I get all of that, and I, I, it's easy to take pot shots. I don't have an opinion on that. I actually think it's cool that that was something that they had um, – the, the reality of the, you know, the, the ultimate fact of that happening to one of them had been something they had reckoned with early on. But does the bass player have a beard? Did the man get a running start on growing the beard? Apparently, now this is what I've read, we'll do a little bit of a deep dive. The bass tech was told to start growing his beard no. about two years ago. Yeah. No. So he doesn't have the hair, but he's yeah. got the beard. And he never had the beard. And his wife's like, what's going on? And she was kind of seeing through. And, you know, Dusty was starting to sit down uh, through half the set on yeah. a, uh, like a, a big carrying case. So I, I think, let's just say the signs were there. Maybe right. Dusty wasn't not going to be on this earth anymore. I think that was a surprise. But I think him like being a touring uh, entity for ZZ Top was not the most uh, uh, surprising thing, him not being there. They, they were prepared. That, I, w- I was joking. That is... Yeah, I'm not. I mean, sure. I, 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 no, again, that's that's cool, and I, I actually really, I really like that. That's that's a pretty a pretty manly way of dealing with the situation. But to to be growing a beard under those circumstances, to be passing dusty every single day on tour, knowing he's looking at your beard to see how it's coming in. <laughs> I think Dusty was complicit. With no, I know. Thing. I totally understand that. Mind you, why Dusty is not on this earth. He's making money tonight while ZZ Top is playing. So there's, right. you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of elements involved besides like, well, I can't believe ZZ Top is is still is out there playing this quickly. You know, we've talked about this before. Never get into a band's interpersonal dynamics. No, never. No, no, no. Don't ask people about their relationships. That's right. Don't ask the same thing about bands. It's the same thing. You know, everybody has their own thing. And this was apparently done with the blessing of Dusty. Dusty said, you better grow your beard out. You're an Africa. This is Dusty's choice. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's that, 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 that's, that's, I I understand exactly what's going on. That's totally kick-ass. That's just, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting any of that, but I've wrapped my head around it. I I dig it. I wrap my head around it now. So um, those are just a couple of the fairly noteworthy acts that had released albums this month. We will not 
presumably be the voting time too. I'm going to start with a really, really huge hit. I don't know if it was June of 81 or, um, or if it was May that Diana Ross signs that great big deal with whoever the heck she signed with. She left Motown $20 million. And I'm pretty sure the biggest hit that the new label got out of her was Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Yeah, a cover song. You know yeah. what I mean? Where they got right. no publishing on it. And, uh, right. Coming up was what, 80 or 79? Yeah, I mean, Disco's alive and well when she does coming up. Yeah. Gotcha. I think Columbia got her record deal. Would you, could, could you confirm that with me? I'd yeah, absolutely. Sure. Well, let me play you something while I look into that. So Thank there's a, um, a, a fairly forgotten movie that came out that month by the name of Endless Love. And the soundtrack to that yielded a number one hit I mean, this has to be Diana Ross's la- last number one hit, right? It must be. But now I asked you, was the Endless Love soundtrack on her new label or was it on Motown? Right. Or was it on a third because it was... something independent, yeah. Yeah, because By it was... By the way, Endless Love, though forgotten, you said that well, was gigantic. I was old enough to remember. That movie was huge. The song was number one. You know, Lionel Richie, you know, uh, it's uh, that, that was a gigantic, gigantic cultural phenomenon. That summer of 81, Endless Love. Yeah, and we're and and we've already been talking about how Lionel's about ready to jump the ship. This is when the Commodores are getting real, real, real nervous because now Lionel's having hits left and right that have nothing to do with brick shit houses. Right, exactly, exactly. The writing's so, on the wall there. Yep. To refresh everybody's memory, this schmaltzy, syrupy smash hit, Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. song i mean it's, it's a beautiful song it's always done at any karaoke joint too probably towards clothing closing time there's always the two drunks that just you know meet <laughs> together and just do the worst version ever of this song but the, you know the, the will is there the execution not so much so she leaves motown wait i just had it she signs with rca rca at 20 million then dude is like 200 I million <coughs> I mean, it was like I mean, they probably still haven't recouped that number, you know, for the Diana Ross output since then, you know? Yeah. Well, the weird thing is it says that she had only received $250,000 severance from Motown, which leads me to believe that Motown declined to re-sign her. And B, when did record labels start giving severance? That doesn't sound right to yeah. me. Uh, yes. They never really did. But let's be honest, she was an early part of Motown, and maybe they had some severance packages early on there. They did things different back then. Yep. I think I, I think Barry Gordy would have done whatever he could to keep Diana Ross in-house in Motown. You right. Know, that the strength is bigger than the, you know, the numbers are bigger than the parts are bigger than the sum. Uh, <laughs> the sum is bigger than the parts over there at Motown. And it opened the door for guys like Smokey Robinson to leave. Um, you know, and Marvin Gaye left. So I, I think it was kind of like the floodgates open when Diana was the first to leave. So I, I don't think it was Barry Gordy's decision to let her leave. But if someone's going to throw $20 million at you in 81, that is FU money beyond belief. That's FU money today. 
Yeah, know, yeah, imagine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine 40 years ago. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You give them a gold watch and thank them for their service. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, that was probably, ironically, Barry Gordy probably had to give her something to leave Motown, you know, because she was such a huge part of the building blocks, that whole uh, operation. You have just been to Lollapalooza, which I didn't even know was a thing anymore, but it's back. <laughs> and, uh, and, and apparently, I don't know if it's bigger than ever, it's big. There were lots and lots and lots of people there. Some might even argue too many people, but that's not what we're here to discuss today. And I am led to believe, a buddy of mine texted me, shocked, incredulous, that in 2021, after all the whole weekend of contemporary hit-making, taste-making artists, the headliner of the entire festival was Journey? Oh, shit. Shows what I know. No, Journey, Journey played after Limp Bizkit. You're right about that. They, they did. But, but what's ironic is, is that the biggest sets of the night or of the weekend were Limp Bizkit and Journey. Certainly the most talked about was Fred Durst's new look and Limp Bizkit. They went out there, rocked it, killed it. I, I was on a plane with them on the way out there, and I was sitting next to Fred. And he's like, oh, would you see my look, Mark? And I'm like, dude, your days of going viral over, man, in my head. You know, I'm like, way to go. Then after they perform, like it's his look is still trending today. So yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, and it's ironic because it's kind of the perfect storm because that Woodstock '99 documentary is out, and they took a lot of flag for that. You know, sure. some some rightfully so, and some not necessarily so. Uh, so it, there's been a perfect a, a resurgence of Limp Biscuit is back. Yes. They're on the road, and I've, I've said this before. Once the stink of a decade kind of goes away, and the '90s took a little longer because the '90s never ended. Yeah, we've talked about this. Nate, what's the, what's the what's the decade from two two thousand to two thousand ten called? Yeah, it's, it wasn't the aughts. The I don't aughts know didn't either. take right. What about 2010, 2020? Yeah, I, I yeah. don't know either. So right. the, the, this 90s decade, if you were a douche in the 90s, you're still a douche in 2021. Like there's been no douche replacement, except the stink has gone away a lot. The nostalgia has really creeped in. And the biscuit goes out there and they were always good live. Whether you liked them or not, they could always deliver live. And they killed it. And so did Journey. Journey destroyed it, you know. And it's in this world of Jack Harlow's we all live in, who all did great. You know, there's still something about a band going up there and playing with the drums and guitar and bass that, you know, there's something to be said for that. This month, well, last month of 1981, Journey released the album Escape, which featured their signature hit... I think you know how Don't Stop Believing goes. Yeah. Heard a few times. <laughs> you know what's weird about that song? And again, I, I date myself because I was old enough to remember when it was out, uh, when it first came out. It's gotten bigger now than it was in 1981 at its peak. Yeah. When, when, you know, when the video MTV was just around the corner, so they're going to get some video love. Uh, we're about a month away from MTV, um, which just had its 40-year anniversary, which is uh, exciting to some. Certainly me, being a small part of the history. Uh, I, I think after the Sopranos uh, revived the song, it's never gone away from being, it was always a classic, but now it's become like one of the top 10 songs of all time to me. 
and classic rock. Not personal taste, just in terms of when people react to it, you know? Like, if you're a DJ in a Vegas club, you're going to play the baby, you're going to play little baby, you're going to play every baby, and then you're going to play Journey. And people can go ape shit, young people still. So it's incredible. That song has gotten bigger as time has gone on, you know? And it was gigantic. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. This was the conversation I was having with my buddy. I feel like their reputation has somehow, and I'm not sure how exactly, sort of been laundered a little bit. They were huge at the time, but they weren't taken totally seriously. Nobody was putting them in the Pantheon alongside the Zeppelins and the ACDCs. Granted, they're a little bit later than those bands. I feel like that's the biggest thing is it used to be something that people with taste enjoyed. Guilty pleasure, tongue in cheek. If you're drunk, you throw your arm around your buddy and scream along to it. I don't know that young people who have taste in music who embrace that song think of that as a guilty pleasure. I think they think of that like it is a classic rock hit akin to an Aerosmith song, a Zeppelin song. I, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm, you know, in the early 90s, Journey, they, they were going through different singers. They were playing a thousand seaters, thousand seat clubs, Journey. Um, they get together with REO Speedwagon and Sticks. They might barely sneak in a Greek gig amongst their summer tour, but, you know, they, they weren't doing it on their own. Then they found the kid on YouTube, Arnel Pineda from uh, Philippines. They literally found him doing karaoke to Journey. And they said, should we bring him over? Watch the Journey documentary. It's fascinating. They've got the first meeting when the guy Arnel walks into the, uh, to the, to the rehearsal space and they shake his hands. That, that's when documentary is great, when they have so much compelling footage. And now they play stadiums around the world. So you are entirely correct. This band got a second chance at a legacy. I want to say they were not a legacy band in the early 90s. They are the epitome of a legacy band today. I remember being really surprised Vice, when Vice magazine was really firing on all cylinders and was the king of cool among hipster Brooklyn, Williamsburg, New York. I remember reading a thing where they said that that was the all-time greatest cocaine anthem, not song about cocaine, song to listen to when you're on cocaine. And I was so shocked that somebody who was so cool, and it's almost like, oh, are, are we ironically liking this? Are we saying that this is cool because it's so uncool that that makes it kind of weirdly cool? But I think in retrospect, that was the turning the turning point, that that, that, that song was becoming a credible piece of work. I mean, it's fucking cool. It is. It's one of the most anthemic pieces of music ever recorded. It, I, I totally agree. You play, you can play every solo with your fingers, like I was just doing while you were playing it. You know, every like the 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 outro chorus is so powerful. It's just, yeah. you know, it's it's just a magical song. And we've talked about this a lot. 81 production, dude. You know, you're talking about Manhattan Transfer, you're talking about like bands that were struggling to find a sound that was so thin and reedy and crappy. Don't Stop Believing sounds as good today as like a Rammstein song made on computers, you know? So they got lucky in the production too. They got lucky to have a complete second half that dominated their first half. They're bigger now than they ever were as a live entity. So it's just, uh, it's been an incredible second, second half for them. I don't know what else to say, you know? And the, in that same month, the Go-Go's, I feel like we've mentioned they've been coming for a while now, released their debut album, Beauty and the Beat, finally. And, uh, well, I mean, everybody knows exactly what all the singles from that sound like as well. But as long as we're on the subject. 
it's so nice when you're that early in your career and you're still finding your sound that you can write something so simple and so innocent. And it's, it just works. Cause you know, I, 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 it's really stuck with me. That was um, Huey Lewis, the way that he expressed his objection to Ray Parker Jr. Knocking off Ghostbusters for hire was we'd caught a wave and that guy stole our wave, you know, which is to say he didn't steal the song. We had just tapped into a vibe and he stole the vibe just like, you know, Famously, in groundbreaking legal fashion, uh, the Marvin Gaye Blurred Lines uh, lawsuit, where you didn't take the song, you just stole its soul. Boy, that's, that's well put, man. That is well put. <laughs> and apparently, you can, uh, you, know, you can make a legal declaration on soul, because as we know, yeah. you know uh, Pharrell and uh, Robin uh, unfortunately lost their ass on that. But you know, the vibe is vibe. Yeah. And Gogo's had such a vibe there. And Finally on the Rock and Hall of Fame, well-deserved. I know you mm-hmm. and I had kind of gone back and forth a little bit about that. Yep. And what's interesting about Our Lips Are Sealed is that the Go-Go's opened for the specials when they were touring in the UK and Europe, and they were getting shit thrown at them and all that and spit at all, and no one knew, no one cared who they were. And the specials had to have been a little bit of an oi skinhead fan base, and you know they weren't looking for a bunch of you know girls in Southern California to play poppy, peppy music at them. But Terry Hall and Jane Wheatland who co-wrote that song, Fell in Love. And apparently the lyrics are made out of the love letters that they were sent to each other back and forth because they both had significant others. And then Our Lips Are Seal came from that exchange. I love the backstories of stuff like that. So if oh, you look me at too. that song, T. Hall is part of the songwriting of that. And that's why Fun Boy 3 did Our Lips Are Sealed off the specials program. Wow, I had absolutely no idea. And that's why I'm the three-time Rock Hole Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. Glad you could be here. <laughs> okay. So here, here we are in 81 in a band that had hu- uh, 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 a female vocalist from a band that was absolutely gigantic in the 1970s, released her solo debut. Grace Lick? No. Oh, Stephen Nicks. Maybe. But right now I'm talking about... <laughs> Maybe. But right now we are talking about... Debbie Harry from Blondie. Uh, yeah, who released... She had a solo record in 81? Mm-hmm. There might be a reason why you never heard about it. Off of the album Cuckoo, here is the, I believe, the most noteworthy track, the single, um, Backfired. Wow. Unfortunate title, by the way. (laughs) I know. You know, so this must have been after the rapture, which she got a little rap on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Rapture was gigantic. I'm feeling the flow. I'm totally down with the hip hop, you know, community. Fab Five Freddy's in my video. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a hip hop record. At least a single. And uh, and yeah, and that that came, we, we did that on one of these episodes. That came out like six months prior to this. So this so, is so. What about Call Me? Remember the American Gigolo in the movie? I think mm-hmm. that was '82, but I'm not sure. I'm, yeah. What I'm wondering, what I'm getting at, what was the last Blondie single before they broke up? You know, obviously, I guess Call Me must have been from American Gigolo, the soundtrack. Let's see, and then obviously, that, and then obviously they big. got uh, 
they got back together. That stuff doesn't count. Um, but she 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 did she did release a couple solo records in the eighties. I remember Deaf, Dumb, and Blonder, I think, or something like that. And this was like 86, 87. I was in college then, so I think Blondie was largely dormant through the eighties until like the late eighties. And they're yes. like, listen, man, we need to get some mortgages together. You know. That's right. No exit came out in ninety nine, uh, ending a a 17 year, at least album hiatus on in, in 1982, they released an album called no exit featuring the singles. Oh my goodness. Look at her. She looks like, Holy crap. She looks like Jim Gillette from nitro. Her hair, the hair above her eyebrows is taller than the face below her eyebrows. Wow. Wow. And she, she was my first crush ever, ever. My first like, oh, ah, ah, like a you know, Revenge of the Nerds moment. You're like, ah, ah, like, I didn't know what that was for. And I saw the uh, uh, Heart of Glass video. I was 10 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. You are not lying. That yeah. was 80, her 82 look. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They released the, the hell. Yeah, they recorded that album that that same year. She is uh, the pride of Hawthorne, New Jersey, which is about a half hour away from me and where my entire band was from Hawthorne. So um, shout out to Hawthorne. Yeah, she Look was at the a, legends in that picture. Clem Burke, Jimmy Destry, Chris, uh, Chris Stein. I mean, that blondie was full of uh, just legends. You know, the bass player went, uh, wound up being a uh, Nigel. Uh, Nigel, I can't remember. What's, yeah, you have the Wikipedia up there. Nigel uh, Prescott, maybe. No, it's Nigel something. The bass player. The curly hair. Let's see. I'm working on it. He became an AR guy for uh, Interscope and signed some big ads. Nigel Harrison. Nigel Harrison. That's it. And I believe he did a little bit of time with the Tom Tom Club. But don't get me. Uh, don't come at me, bro. If I'm, yeah. if I'm wrong. Yeah. No, that sounds about right. Small world. Wait, what, what a look that Deb, Deborah Harry had right there. My God. You know, once you get into that whole, they're hip, they're happening, they always have their finger on the pulse of stuff, and they're they're always where, wherever they are is where we're all going to be a year later. That's uh, you know, you 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 fly too close to that flame and you get burned. I, you know, I, I really think that's an under remarked upon thing. I can't really speak to David Bowie. I was less impressed by some of the the stuff that he turned himself into when he was like running around as a clown and stuff like that. I don't really think that was quite as cool as Ziggy Stardust. Madonna gets so much credit for have for being the female Bowie and the, the chameleon and the reinvention. I don't know how many she actually pulled off before it just sort of became her chasing trends and not really setting them anymore. Yeah. And then there's a way to do that gracefully, too. You know, I mean, father time is undefeated. Of course. So there will be a time where no one wants to see someone over a certain age be cool or set a trend. It's just how trends work. Yes. Yeah, trends are a young person's ballgame. Mm -hmm. And Madonna hung on for a long time. David Bowie kind of turned into this elegant sort of, uh, you know, Italian suits, uh, sharp dressed guy. You know what I mean? That's and what he, you do. Yeah. The, yeah. He laid off the Harlequin onesies, you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, which, which don't age very well. Uh, and, and so, but you know, look at, we're talking about icons, Madonna, David Bowie, they're untouchable in terms of like sure. you know, trends and what they've done and reinventions. And yeah, you know, they're still, they're still doing it. Yep. So, yeah, you were correct. Stevie Nicks did release her. I believe it is her her debut. I'm pretty positive it is. But she was not the only member of Fleetwood Mac who put out a solo record in July of 1981. You want to hear what Mick Fleetwood was up to? 
I'm shocked it was him because Lindsay is a guy always causing problems. Like he would release a solo record when, you know, when, when, uh, when Stevie did, you know what I mean? I guess. No, yeah. I totally get you. I totally get you. But, Lindsay's new single, by the way, I dig Lindsay's new single. I'm glad to hear he has a new single because he didn't have much of a voice two years ago. There's one if he's ever going to sing again. So I, that's, that's glad to hear that. Oh, it's pretty good. Well, I'll play it for you. But, but first, yeah, here, let's listen to the, I mean, Mick Fleetwood, whatever makes you happy, buddy. essential that's when the label pays for your cocaine and you go make a record you know that is oh man it must have been so great it must have been yeah. so great i mean the throat the throaty vocals that guy's been up for two days you can yeah. really gargle out a word <laughs> yep. i was gonna go no way is it gonna be like a bluesy type you know mick mm. fleetwood comes from the blues your gigantic super group breaks up you got more money than god what do you do with your time you go to the studio you throw a record to get together on the label's money yep. you have a good time you have a party you know? yep that's you, yeah you write in studio the, the glorious days of this place cost you know whatever it is in 80 1980 dollars this place costs six thousand dollars a day which is some unfathomable sum to the average joe lunch pail and you're in there writing shit not recording you show up with a couple of little ideas and sit around and go i don't know what do you think about this i don't know what do you think about this should we take a break and do 18 more lines oh man it must have been so great that's if he even showed up you know, that's I mean, right. good point not even was the engineer just picking his nose going i don't know if they're going to show up or not you know so i still get paid right days and I, I don't blame them at all for having a party on someone else's nickel you know no, absolutely. Yeah. There was plenty of money to go around. I'm going to real quick uh, play you this clip. I really, I like this song. I feel like if you like Fleetwood Mac, I went and listened to the album that Lindsay Buckingham did with Christine McVie recently. And you know, that came out like three, four years ago. And it's like, it's, it's, it's pleasant. It's cool. It's about what you'd expect from those two. This song I, I like, it's called I Don't Mind. And the album hasn't even been released. Sounds like anything Coldplay is doing right now and just as good. Yeah, agreed, you agreed. I mean? His voice sounds young and fresh. I was glad yeah. to hear that. He's a yeah. supremely talented individual, so it doesn't surprise me that it's decent. One of the only guys I've ever seen that can take an acoustic guitar, go out there by himself, and start playing the way he plays. You know, he speeds it up and stuff, and then get a standing ovation. Not a polite a standing ovation this guy you know he's I a mean, monster he's a he's monster a beast, man. What, what, especially especially with an acoustic he's an absolute oh. monster he, the, he um, rocks on acoustic i've never seen that before i saw i was, I was watching a access one of those you know that axs that yeah, yeah, yeah. yes and, and i'm just watching and i'm like this is about eight years ago and i go this i'm not even a lindsey buckham fan this guy is destroying this audience right now so yeah, yeah it, I mean, it doesn't surprise me when you have that level of talent yeah, you know, I'm shocked because a couple of years ago, I don't know what happened. He, he got to trick you out on yourself. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but yeah. something happened to his vocal cords that were either injured in a in a procedure or in there. They're like, we don't think he's ever going to sing again. That's why they replaced him. Oh, I thought. Oh, I thought that everybody hated each other. I, I honestly—that's that, the fun Fleetwood Mac thing to keep going that everybody believes, you know. But 
apparently he, he could not sing. He, he was just, he was, you know, and they, the band wanted to go out and make some money. They're not getting any younger. Of course. And, you know, Neil Finn was available from Crowded House and uh, Mike Campbell. They said, hell, let's make, let's make this happen. Yeah, those two guys put together add up to one, one Lindsey Buckingham. Why not? Well, listen, I want to hear three Crowded House songs at a Fleetwood Mac concert. And he plays every one of them perfectly. So it's great. So, yeah, Stevie Nicks has her solo debut Bella Donna. And this album is a is a frigging monster. I would be tempted to listen to this top to bottom. It was tough for me to pick one sample of one song that is representative because she had at least three monster hits, each of which was fairly distinct from one another. But I think this is, after all this time, her signature solo hit, Edge of Seventeen. Yeah. There's the difference right there. Those records came out the same month. Edge yeah. of 17 sounds amazing right now. Mm-hmm. And, and Mick Fleetwood's record is Mick Fleetwood's record. Yeah, it sucked yeah. even then. Um, it, the, I love Stevie Nicks tells the story of the chorus of Edge of 17, which is a white winged dove does make a song that sounds like ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> That's and we're all in. That's the hook. She's like, oh, that white winged dove is making a song. It sounds like ooh, ooh, ooh. And we're off to the races. You know, I did she, I, I don't know if it's up, if she'll have it up, but I, A, I wonder who produced that record. And yeah. B, did she write all the tracks by herself? Okay. Yeah, right. So I was interested in that too, because I've never been clear on the nature of her authorship of her music. I think of her as more of a singer than a writer in Fleetwood Mac. I really want to hear her demos because i guess she's fairly famous for not playing an instrument but showing up with these crude sort of like michael jackson was famous for these vocal demos where all the critical parts are in there and then she but then she's wholly dependent on people who can actually pick up stringed instruments to make them into music so the answer is yes and no tom petty i believe wrote Stop dragging my heart around, which is their I, I duet, think you're right. Which is their duet, which is a number three hit from this. But I but did am, he produ- did he produce the record? Did, did you know? You know what I'm saying? It feels like a Tom Petty esque production. He gets co-producing credit along with Jimmy Iovine. Ah, uh, Jimmy Iovine, that's right. That, you know that that look at guys right there. That's that's the difference between a record sounding great. Jimmy Iovine and, and obviously Tom Petty, legends. Uh, would continue out bigger careers after this record. Uh, you know, that, that's what great production sounds like right there. And I'll tell you what, going back to Stevie Nicks songwriting, there's many ways you can write songs. That's sure. why I always tell people. People always go, what comes first, the lyrics? Or it, it's, it's all contingent upon you. Sometimes I would write, I wrote Someday on bass, you know, because it was just such a simple bass line. It's the only one I could play. It's like boom, 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 boom. We started from there. So, um, I think what she probably had was the blueprint of what she wanted. And then she needed, she needed some of the subcontractors to come in there, lay the drywall, lay the mechanicals and all that. But songwriting comes in many shapes and forms. P. Diddy has never picked up an instrument in his life. And he's considered one of the best songwriters of the 90s, you know? So it's interesting yeah. how that works. Yeah, Ozzy gets the same kind of credit for having, uh, you know, you, you can't have that many 
great songs that all sound have a singular sound without having had a hell of a lot of of, of input and and you can Absolutely. hear the and you can hear the guitar stuff changing dramatically but it's always it's always always Ozzy I mean Zach Wild Randy Rhodes and Tony Iommi have very very little in common beyond distortion pedals and yet right. it, all, it all sounds like. It all sounds like Ozzy. Another, I mean, it, even that Post Malone song he just released, when the Ozzy chorus comes in, it's so Ozzy. It's an yeah. Ozzy song, so you're that's right. right about that. Yeah, he's like a, a Morrissey guy. At one time, uh, where it's such a distinctive thing, it's it's kind of the the challenge for them is not to just do repeat themselves and do self parody. I, I listened one time, a guy made some song insulting Morrissey, saying anybody can write a Morrissey song. Look, I wrote a dumb Morrissey song, and I'm listening. I'm thinking, I fucking love this. Right, <laughs> you're right, right, it, right you're right, right. It, it really is you've done it you can do it too wow great but you know he did it first it's his thing you're just imitating right. it yeah i think angus angus young said the greatest thing about that ever someone said you know you've made 12 acdc records that sound exactly the same and angus goes how dare you this is our 13th record yeah you know what i mean it's just the per perfect like ac you know it's just you find your lane saying it man you know what i mean or you, you try your whole career as a musician to find the lane, you yep. know, stay in it right yeah. now. Yeah. And then you milk that vein until it's dry. Pat Lots of female pop rock stuff happening this particular month. Pat Benatar has released the album Precious Time. Everyone will recall. Just about picture the skinny little fabric absolutely headband. the leotard with the spandex yeah. and the stripes i mean also like the heavy rouge uh makeup i mean the, also the the pixie haircut she had i mean you know if you watch fast times at ridgemont high half the girls in there have the pat benatar look it's incredible the effect she had on the culture not just musically but you know aesthetically you know and uh ricky lee jones she's somebody that i've kind of Missed. I know her by name and I saw a clip of her on SNL, Chucky's in Love from the 70s. And then that's all I really knew about her. You probably know more than I do. But I went this. So she made the album. She's one of these people who won the I think the best new artist Grammy and seemed like she was on her way. And then that ended up sort of being the peak in some ways that that uh, that particular Grammy ends up being a curse for a lot of people. But her next album would just, you know, had the critical failure of not having a single. But have you ever spent any time with Wrigley Jones? It, it's, it's good. I think she's super talented. And I really love the tone of her voice. Uh, the person who Chucky Weiss was Chucky's in love who recently yeah. just passed away two weeks ago. Chucky Weiss and the goddamn liars. The reason why Johnny Depp bought the Viper Room used to be called the Central on Sunset. And Chucky Weiss had a weekly uh, show he'd been doing there for 30 years. That's how he met Ricky Lee Jones, everybody would go there and perform. And those in the know, in the know would come to the show. You know what I'm saying? Well, they were going to tear the central down and, and Johnny Depp, because he has a lot of money, said, no, I want Chucky Weiss to keep playing. Bought it, became the Viper Room. Chucky Weiss played for like five, six more years at the Viper Room. So that he that is the Chucky's in love. He just passed away a month ago, I believe. Um, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, so like in the Sarah McLaughlin, Paula Cole artistry, where I think she yep. fell a little upon a hit. 
You yeah. know, and then went back to what she does best, which is kind of a bluesy, jazzy type yes. um, music that, you know, Chucky's in Love was a million to one to be a hit back in 81, especially what was going on. So I think she snuck in with an anomaly uh, in terms of a hit, but was a little out of the lane in what she's used to writing in, uh, which is a perfect storm of something having a one-hit wonder, becoming one, like a like a Chris Isaac or something, you know? Yes, that's right, that's right. This track right here, I hope I have the right one. I should have written down the name of it. But, uh, we Belong Together is the first song off of her follow-up album, Pirates. It's just sort of a meandering thing. It's all nice stuff without ever getting at the great big hook, which is, of course, nine times out of ten what a big pop hit is going to need. I did not know that we would not have had an Edie Brickell were it not for Ricky Lee Jones. As I said, a meandering piece of work. It's almost like improv. Like, I don't think right. she had that all written out before she went to the studio, which I'm very impressed by. It's she fair. has such a jazzy kind of scat quality to her vocal. Yeah. And, you know, she would kind of slur words like, I don't know what the hell she just said. She might not know what the hell she just said. Neither did Dylan. It's very unique. And she's such an artist. You know what I mean? No yeah. one sounds like her. Edie Brickell did a little commercialized, sanitized version of that. Yeah. But I, I believe Ricky Lee Jones believes everything she's singing, even if there aren't any words to it. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. I also, it's funny where things intersect, where you think they're from different camps. To me, that uh, that piano part is, uh, that's Bruce Springsteen's uh, Born to Run album. Yep, absolutely. Actually, absolutely. I, let me check. I wouldn't be surprised if it's actually, uh, if it's actually the piano player from, What's that guy's name, man? Is it Roy Britton? Britton? Britton is right. I think you're right. Uh, no, 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 no. He's, he's not credited on the Wikipedia anyway. Uh, moving along into a different genre. I did not know Luther Vandross is awesome. I didn't know Never Too Much was from 1981. I thought that song was from like the late 80s. I would have said early, I would have said 83, 84. I know it was his, it was his, you know, it was his coming out party. Yeah. Uh, you know, musically, uh, with all due respect. Yes. Um, but I, I, why do I think he was discovered on Star Search? We'll look into that. The, um, was Star Search around in 81? I, I just, why do I think there's a Star Search connection with Lucer Vandross? I, I do, maybe I'm wrong, and I've definitely been wrong before and on this show and probably on this particular one. But boy, what a song that is. And that, that to me has an Al Jarreau feel to it. I wonder mm -hmm. who wrote that or produced that for him. Um, yeah. but, and, and also talk about a song that still sounds fresh today. You listen to that, the production on it, it sounds like it's from anywhere but 81. That's what I'm he not, thought from later. You know? Dude, I'm not kidding. When he passed away, which was in the early 2000s i didn't know i knew i knew his big hits in the 80s and 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 i knew that he was bigger in the r&b community than he'd ever been in the pop world but i didn't know a ton about him i 
thought when that song was getting play when he passed that that was a track he had recorded that was released posthumously. I sincerely believe that that song was new when it was 25 years old. And we're talking about it. Let's play it. How do you write that? It's so good. I was like, never too much, never. Too. How do you? How do you even like? That is so supremely talented. And you know what? I never realized how many disco stabs in orchestration there is in that. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of like. Oh yeah. We were talking about. How we're kind of leaving disco in the 80s mm -hmm. where, you know, it's kind of become a bad smell. There's a lot of disco stabs in that, like with the horns, man, that just really sit in the bass and the guitar in that. I mean, I, 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 be, I want to know who the players are. I mean, that's probably Steve Jordan. That's probably Letterman's band backing him up, man. That, that's monster players. So he had, um, he wrote that song. Which I he wrote I it by himself. It says he wrote everything on his debut album except a cover of "A House Is Not a Home." Uh, they're wow. talking about him doing "Amateur Night at the Apollo." Appeared in the in um in the pilot episode of Sesame Street in sixty nine seventy, and then he's what? doing and then, I don't know, and then he's doing backups for everybody for 10 years until he then gets his, uh, he got his breakthrough as a featured singer with the pop dance act change, a studio concept created by a French Italian businessman. And, uh, and, 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 you know, he, he sang a couple songs on changes debut album. And then, um, and then he got his solo recording contract and we'll see who played on it. That song is so freaking good. God, still sounds so, so very good. And, you know, it was the Apollo thing that I saw, not Star yeah. Search. It, it's like it's one of the most famous ones ever where the whole, the whole crowd is like just losing their minds. And, you know, it was, it was just untouchable. You know, this guy's a superstar. Written, composed, produced, performed by Luther Vandross. Uh, I'm trying to see. Period? That's, Jesus. Yeah. You know, that, that is all one coherent vision. It doesn't surprise me. You know, from like the breakdowns, that's all one guy's just beautiful artistic statement. And, you know, the, sometimes music makes me so happy. Yeah. And that song makes me so very happy. It makes me, it makes me glad to be a human being listening to music. I know, I know, I know. And, and once again, I'm just going to keep saying it. I keep getting that off of the, um, the R&B of that era. I can't see who else who else played on it, but obviously highly skilled professionals. And as a guy who'd been a session backup singer for 10 years, you would think he knew the numbers to call. He had the Tony Thompson's playing drums. Yeah. He had the, you know, whoever needed to be. But yeah, yep. I mean, they were lucky to play with him, it turns out. In 1981, the Ramones are what now, about five years into their career? And I think they're maybe four or five albums in. because I want Oh, to for sure. Two records out the first year, I want to say. The first two, uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. So they, they're definitely a 75, I want to say the first record came out, but probably 76. I think 75 it came out and they went to the UK in 76, then started the whole punk explosion. But yeah, they, they, were, they were like the Beatles. They were putting out content. They were putting out material. We didn't call it content back then. 
but what was this rocket to Russia? What record is this? We're up to, no, I think that's already happened. We're up to pleasant dreams. Pleasant dreams. Got it. And that features, I'd say the most um, noteworthy track off of that, a song that remained in their, uh, their set lists until the very end. That's a brutal backstory of that song. <laughs> yeah, tell everybody for those who don't know. It's it's brutal. The Ramones insisted on traveling in a van, only in a van, no matter what. Even in the last tours in the mid-90s, they insisted on traveling in a van. They traveled Econo. They refused to, you know, there was no frivolous stuff, simple hotels. They never really got the big, big money, big money gigs, but I think they would have done it anyway. Joey Ramone gets a girlfriend named Linda. Linda, the only way Joey will go on tour is if Linda can come with and sit in the van. Now, anybody who's been on the van tour knows that's a little bit Yoko Ono-ish. It's a little gnarly. So what does Johnny Ramon do? He steals Linda Ramon away from Joey, but he steals her away in California. They got to travel all the way back in the van with Linda in the car being jo uh, Johnny's girl now. And eventually his wife, became, he married Linda Ramon. And that song, The KKK Took My Baby Away, is supposedly Joey's response to Johnny stealing Linda. Right. There's several different alleged stories, one of which that there's a, a literal story where that is literally true. I don't know how it could be, <laughs> but there's a couple of different legends. That's the, the pretty much the agreed upon story. God, just um, from such simple borderline uh, childlike music to know the, 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 I don't know if it's pathos or pathos, you know what I'm talking about? Just yes. The, 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 the Greek drama happening behind the scenes of this band that just gets out on stage and sings Hey Ho in half of their songs. Right. And they're one, two, three, four. I know. Go talking about the, the pettiness and the childish, yeah. childishness carried over not only from the music into the real life. Yeah. I mean, Johnny, I think, did that just in spite of Joey, you know, because there was like, you know, again, band politics. We talk yeah. about it all the time. Don't try and understand them. Just let them be. Uh, and then, you know, this is weird stealing of the girlfriend. And then he ended up marrying Luna Ramon, you know, and, and there, there you go. Now, who knows what that song's about? I like the story, though. I'm no, 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 I definitely uh, I, 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 I tend to subscribe to that to that version of it as well. So the Ramones are first wave punk and they're still doing their thing and still chasing the brass ring but by now five years six years after the first wave the second wave is in full swing we've already heard from some of the more hardcore type bands but it flowered in various different ways mission of burma is a band that has never done a whole heck of a lot for me except for this one song which came out on their album signal calls and marches in uh in july of 1981 
must have pained them to write an actual chorus. Uh, right? Because it's a beautiful song. That was a K-Rock song back in the day. The I'm sure. Phenomenon. The, the guitar player must have mixed that song, man. It's <laughs> coming through hardcore. And that is an amazing, amazing. Where was Mission of Burma from? Was, was, it, was it Boston or was it? That sounds about right. Let's see. I think I'm wrong, though. I, I, I... Mission of Burma. Yep. Post-punk band formed in 1979 in Boston, Massachusetts. Was Boston? Was Boston? That that's a it's it's. I I think they listened to a lot of Clash records and said, "Let's make ourselves a little bit of a song here." Was mm-hmm. Mission of Burma on a major label in '81? Let's Tully? see. In the early years, all of their records were released on the Boston-based record label Ace of Hearts. That's crazy because I you know that was not obviously a unless they had major label distribution. That's you know and but that I'm gonna, song. Was, I'm, I'm going to guess know, they did not. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I mean, that's when like, that's when college rock was like a real thing. Like it was, and you could actually make a living and certainly a little bit of a career uh, if you could hit the sort of, you know, Matt Pinfields of your local college station. Well, it sounds like what happened was it was immediately popular with a local radio station in Boston. And I guess uh-huh. once, once you get through that, that's the first like hoop you need to get through. And once you do, then maybe you can get into the whole birds of a feather sharing stuff with their brethren at the, at the K rocks of the world. I didn't know that that had made it all the way to radio, but it makes sense. It's just, it's, it's for all the other stuff that came out of that scene and the sort of musical political intention of that scene. That's just a very listenable, cool song. And those are, sometimes I like those too. Yeah. And look, we were talking about production. That's got a whole different kind of cool production. Yeah, for sure. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like that to me sounds as relevant and cool as edge of 17 does you, you know what i mean yep. it, for what it's trying to do you know they, I, I don't i wouldn't want bob rock to have touched the clash in 77 you know the very that's in this very that's uh, you know even though the guitar could have been turned down a little bit just a little maybe bit. It, maybe a bit and we will we will round this out with some hard rocking new releases from july 81 where do you stand on electric light orchestra uh totally uh, understand it yeah um I, 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 it spoke to me when I was younger a lot more than it did as I got older. Like, like some of the, like Mr. Blue Sky and a lot of those songs, they didn't age as well as I aged. But ELO really spoke to my roller skating self in the late 70s. Um, I think Jeff Lynn's a genius. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. Praying at the altar of the Beatles, always a good start for me. Being yeah. super talented, uh, you know, and then be able to write good songs. That's a perfect trifecta of me liking what you do. And uh, Jeff Lynn is certainly that. Everything you said is true, but I think you really hit on something. Um, it really is roller rink rock. Yeah. And it didn't age well. You know how Don't Stop Believing aged amazingly? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Mr. Telephone Man did not age as well. Did you, did, don't you agree? Also, Journey could have fallen into that ELO. Let's, let's, I don't want to call them, let's call them a second tier <coughs> legacy band. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, ELO right. is a legacy band for sure. No doubt. You know, but I, I, they're not up there with that Led Zeppelins and, you know, and the Hell Guns no. and Roses. Yeah, so I call them a second tier where Journey was laying in the cut with ELO there and then they got that second wave and now they went up to legacy acts up here, you know? Electric Light Orchestra, I think at this point are maybe a tiny bit past their 
creative and commercial zenith. Although I know, I know that Jeff Lynn was able to crank out radio ready stuff. He would have the ramba, lamba, bamba, bamba, that kind of stuff. He was good for those up until the, the, the wheels finally, the wheels finally came off that in 84, 85 or so. So I don't know, this is, this is uh, fourth, fifth album kind of stuff. Uh, the album is called time and people will probably remember this single right here. career you go away from your influences <laughs> jeff went towards the light i mean that's the most beatles sounding song of all time you know well, it, it, it is but it also just has it's like it's like a it's like a uh an updated poodle skirt at the same time it's like a sock hop milkshake kind of thing you know right especially for the time in 81 when everybody yeah. was just going you know what are we doing we're certainly not going back to the beatles you know we, we get we get you know so you're right about that well okay i just Amazon, I'm, I'm blaming Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime kept t- telling me I wanted to watch Porky's. So I... Wa- <laughs> <laughs> you do? I, my wife's out of town for a week. So I was like, well, she's not going to sit through Porky's, but I will. <laughs> not what I remember any number of ways. I've said this many times, but my family had HBO. We're early adopters of cable. And, uh, and, and, and then they took it away when they caught my sister and I watching Porky's when I was like four years old in the middle of the day. First of all, it's not just a um, cinematic delivery mechanism for nubile naked boobs like I remember. There's actually very, very little nudity, although the entire movie is entirely sex-obsessed. I did not remember or realize that whole thing was already the, we're down at the malt shop, you know, down at the burger drive-in. So, and, and that was weird, like a movie that got made for $4 million that made $200 million. That was not some little cult hit. That was one of the biggest movies of 1981. So there's always, we always talk about the, the main thrust of the zeitgeist. There's a million little cross currents happening at the same time. Jeff Lynn was right where Porky's was. And in 1981, Porky's was everywhere you wanted to be. You're, you're right. You're totally right about it. And that's what the zeitgeist is, the zeitgeist. It's, you know, it's, it's perfectly named. But well, you're right. Everybody was still capitalizing on American graffiti. Yeah, still that's right. Their hats. That's and right. By the way, the stray cats were about a year away. Or they no, were we've already we've already done them. They they they've oh, been on release the first yeah, round. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Rockabilly's about to have a major. I think uh, the Rock Cats are about to be on the Mike Douglas show. So mm-hmm. they, you know, that, I think you know that malt shop. That nostalgia hung around for a long time. It truly clearly, did. clearly. Foreigner, we're up to album number four, and what a banger it was, including such staples of AOR radio as Urgent and Jukebox Hero and this song right here that I also, I, I would have guessed, came out a couple years later.
things. Yeah. Lou Graham had one hell of a voice, man. For sure. I mean, for sure. One for hell sure. of a voice. Number two, you could have just planned for the chorus. I want to know what love oh, is. Yeah. This is a very similar feel. I mean, I know they brought in the, the New York uh, Harlem choir to sing the backup, so it had a different feel, but... I, I know why you thought that song might have been a little later because I want to know what love is maybe 83. So, so yeah. you know, there's a very simpatico between those two songs. Yeah, you know? you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And, 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 and my other takeaway and this era of music is making this abundantly clear to both of us. I don't think there's ever been a song recorded with electric piano that I don't like. I'm sure we could find one. <laughs> you think? I'm sure. I'm sure. But I know what you're saying, man. Yeah. Give me a Hammond B3. Like, I know beautifully placed you know i was watching the black crows are back and doing their thing and i've been watching some live footage from it and boy they they really know how to to perfectly wonderful economic placement of a b3 hammond organ barney miller sound uh theme song all day for me (laughs) (laughs) i got two more tracks i think this is a little bit before he hits his absolute zenith but brian adams is already a player with songs like this ever crossed paths with Brian Adams? I have never crossed paths with Brian Adams. Um, he plays stadiums in Europe still yep. to this day. Never hasn't. Mm-hmm. That chord progression is the most Eddie Money, Brian Adams chord progression. Like this time, everything is, you know. Um, and I, I, I'm asking myself when I'm listening to that, do I like Brian Adams? I was asking myself that. No, I don't and think you I do. guess I do. Think, yeah. I have no problem with Brian Adams. I mean, do you? There's just this thing i hate i'm not trying to just dunk on canadians but there is this very distinctive thing of where they do you remember when um there used to be those that cheap line of perfumes they would advertise on tv designer imposters (laughs) i just get that there have just been so many i don't know if it's just a cultural thing where they're not conflicted about taking things they're really good at taking things that have already been done and just packaging them in a very, very like sure handed, you know, the, Formulaic. Ed- the edges are taken off, but we've, na- I don't think it's, to me, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that Nickelback is from Canada. We've just right. made it's the a- watered down is, 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 is accurate. But it's also it's 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 also kind of perfected. We've just gotten to the core of this thing that somebody else did and made um, a, a big slab of Elvita cheese out of it. Sure. And, and by the way, perfect formula for pop music, like you said. Yeah, right. Very hard. You know, we're gonna have a little rough edge to our vocal. You know, I wear my sunglasses. You know, and like we're gonna get kind of a good-looking guy, uh, a Jamie Walters. Hold on, that came a little later. 
Um, but you know, like a little rough vocal effect, we're going to play the major chords and you're right. Uh, Rush fans would radically disagree with you because there's not many bands that go, boy, they sound just like Rush. You know what I mean? They were oh yeah, of, of course. There's of course. Yeah. Of course. There's, there's exceptions to everything. It's just, yeah. uh, and, and I still see it to this day where, uh, you know, it, it, I feel like, um, some of the new metal bands were sort of, well, we'll be this, this, um, Our Lady Peace was, oh, you know, Smashing Pumpkins are big. Well, check us out. We're Smashing Pumpkins too. Three years later, what's big now? We're that now. And I don't, I wasn't aware of any, not that I really had my ear to the ground of what was going on in Our Lady Peace fandom, but it didn't seem like there was ever this passionate fan base that was like, okay, guys, it was cool that you were ripping off one band. A lot of bands start as imitators and then grow into their own thing. But come on, you're just going to pick a new band to imitate every time out? It doesn't seem like there's as much of a backlash against that among Canadian rock radio or something. It gets a I, pass. I know what you're saying. And I, I think, uh, and there's also Glass Tiger, Honeymoon Suite. I'm thinking a lot of bands down in my head while you're yep. saying that. And they're right in that lane you're saying. Safe? Mm -hmm. Decent pop songs? Do I like them? I don't even know. Yeah. And I think it's because a lot of radio in Canada, is, a lot of it is, is American acts. I mean, they had to make a, a thing a couple of, uh, like years ago where yeah. a certain amount of Canadian acts have to be played on Canadian radio. That's right. I think like 25% or something. So I think it's natural for them to be inspired by and influenced by, but there's also a, a, a tendency to... Uh, you know, make carbon copies as well because because the influence they're getting, you know, it's not really their fault almost. Right. Well, here here's the question: If you're not sure if you like Brian Adams, what's your favorite Brian Adams song? And do you love this it? time? This time, everything is alright. No way. I need somebody, somebody like you. I, I, I you know, I like him. I okay. like him. I just like I said, he plays stadiums. Oh, I know. Everywhere but America. I knew a guy. I knew, I knew a guy who 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 uh, was the closest thing to Burt Kreischer that I've ever met in my entire life. Years before I ever met or heard of Burt Kreischer, that kind of guy, the life of the party, everywhere he goes, even when you don't want him to be. And <laughs> his older brother was the exact opposite of him. He was like a dentist or something like that. And his personal passion was Brian Adams fandom, and he would. Like some people follow the dead around. This guy yeah. would go to multiple Brian Adams show in a row and 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 befriended people. I don't know if we had an internet in those days or not that were like-minded fellow travelers. And that was the first and only time I've heard. That's why I asked if you'd ever come across him because I met that guy one time and he said, oh yeah, sure. There's tons of us who follow Brian Adams everywhere he goes. But that's the first and only time I'd heard of that sort of level of obsessive Brian Adams fan. Doesn't seem like the kind of artist who inspires that sort of obsessive fandom. No, I mean, it'd be like saying, you know, Michael Bolton has that kind of fandom. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that's that surprised me. Like people are selling grilled cheeses in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. I need a miracle at a Brian Adams show. I, I don't, you know, but but this is my point, I guess, because like I said, everywhere outside of America, it's not arenas, it's stadiums. So there yeah. are, you know. You have to have that level of fandom if you're at that level, you know? Yep, yep, yep. And finally, let's see, uh, as I said, there's lots and lots of people. Eddie Rabbit, Poco, uh, Spyro, Gyra, The Time put out their self-titled debut album in July of 1981. But <clears throat> far and away, the one new release from that month that would uh, uh, mean the most to the vast majority of people who are listening to this that we haven't touched on yet is High and Dry from Def Leppard. Yes. Yep. And, um, wow, I was going to play. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one I'm going to play. 
we are talking about. You know, I thought Mutt Lang was the guy that sort of introduced them to backing vocals. Yep. But this is pre-Mutt Lang. I, I can't listen to, of course it's it's pre-Mutt Lang. I, I can't listen to them pre-Mutt Lang and just do a constant compare and contrast in my brain between that's Def Leppard and that could only be Def Leppard and they're absolutely fully formed and are they the most original band who ever existed? No, but they have a thing. They have a lane that's a mile wide. It is totally their thing and yet... They're like a, a a a shadow self of themselves until they start doing stuff with Mutt Lang and 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 the Def Leppardness of it like doubles. There's pre Mutt and post Mutt. Now yeah. I thought Mutt really gave them the backing vocal. Well, he at least gave them the sound, but their backing vocals are already the backing vocals make that uh, song. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Mutt Lang produced that record. I'm gonna be over here if you need me. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I, I swear to God because Hysteria was so. Insanely, I, I had no idea in a million years he produced that. And yep. in '81, we we had already got Back in Black came out in what? Back in Black came out in. Uh, did we do that one too? That, I think they came out in like December of '80. Okay, so it makes sense. He's riding high off that. Def Leppard needs a producer. They run with Mutt, but but I, I, I say this though, I think they all developed as technology developed, and I think Mutt Lang was on the cutting edge of using what is new sounding in the studio because he really took those vocals to another level. So I guess my point is being Mutt really introduced how important backing vocals are to Def Leppard. And that's what, like you said, gave them their lane. That is their lane. All those, you got the bah, 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 bah. all that backing vocal stuff is what makes Def Leppard a legacy band. Okay, so on through the night then is the only album that they made Colonel Tom, Tom Allum produced on through the night. And what that, was the single, what was the right. single release on that? You know, let's listen to it. Cause I don't know it. Wasted by Def Leppard. Sounds like a good title. It sounds like a, uh, yeah, let's, let's see. What it do they like sound an early like? lap title? I love the story where they said that they were um, remastering and remixing and re-releasing all the classic albums, except for this one, because it ended up, um, being poured all of the master tapes from that one studio where they recorded became part of the foundation for like some Saudi guys pool. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear. Okay. From on through the night, here's Def Leppard. Okay, you said that the journey had the video of them meeting their singer for the first time. What I wouldn't give to have videos of of them in the studio with Mutt Lang because I, I hate to, you know, you get into the whole. It's so tempting to do the auteur Svengali thing where you give the guy behind the board all this credit when the band was talented. The band was going to evolve with or without Mutt Lang, but that band we just listened to right there is not a distinctive rock band with a singular sound. No, it's a Judas Priest knockoff with yeah. some riffs that were very contemporary and popular at the time. 
you know, and uh, wasted, not very inspiring of a lyric, nope. you know, and I, and I think when, when I know from people, I work with Mutt Lang uh, on a track for the mm -hmm. Shania uh, Twain's greatest hits, Watch Your Feet for Dropping Names, but um, he, he beats you up in the studio. He beats you up. Like I was a guest. He beat the living shit out of me. I was like going to cry. I wanted to leave. And what's very uh, emblematic of remaking a record with Matt, uh, with Mud, from what I understand from Def Leppard, they would make do those backing vocals over and over until they were like, dude, Mutt, it's good. It's good. I'm talking days on a single fucking chorus. And he's like, it's not good enough. And they learned to trust him and get that sound. So uh, you're right. I mean, I don't like the Svengali thing either. But that band is just another jet boy, with all due respect, you know, without Mutt Lang coming on board. And I love Jet Boy. With all due respect to Jet Boy. Yeah. I love Jet Boy. Heavy, heavy Chevy. Feel the shake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jet Boy. Way, one of the guys from Jet Boy is in uh, uh, Buck Cherry now. Fun fact. That sounds about right. That's my favorite thing about going to see hair metal bands is I get to see four of my favorite bands in the same night on the same stage. <laughs> Hey, wasn't Robbie Crane just with Bang Tango? Wow. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. I, mean, I can't believe it. The Throbs and Vane are also Faster <laughs> Pussycat. This is amazing. This is great, man. It's like a battle and royale will, up there. And we will qualify this that we are absolute. No one loves that genre more than Tully. Oh, my God. I was so excited when I met Tammy Down from Faster Pussycat. And I, I mean, it would have been cool if it had been the original band. But I'm like, wow, I'm meeting the Throbs at the same time. This is incredible. Yeah, and they still yeah. sound great. Got the throbs, man. They had a gigantic record deal. Remember, they were supposed to be. We talked. We talked about this. Before. Oh my god! Oh, it's a good. They delivered a good record. They just delivered it five years too late. That's all. Story of a lot of bands, as we know. <laughs> all right. Well, there is a tiny little naked <laughs> three-year-old who is holding up a. Uh, a, Cinder a Cinderella dress and asking if she can put it on. So <laughs> I think that means the show's over. Yeah, it's time to go. And I know. All right. Well, speaking thank you. Of, speak, speaking of hair metal, Cinderella. Got yep. Well done. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we'll do, uh, we'll do August of um, 1981. Perhaps we'll even do it in August. Hopefully I will speak to you soon until then. Thank you as always for your time, Mark. I look forward to it, Michael Tully. Take care of yourself. And we will definitely get August done. We have to. <laughs>